Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of Takeaways. Here's another NAOP Southern Nevada program recap. NAOP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry. And the April program was a tried and true, a fan favorite, the always dependable broker panel. What NAOP Southern Nevada does is they get the most active brokers in our market. They get a well-known dynamic moderator and they get them to talk about what is actually going on in the market for office industrial and retail so the panelists that were invited for the april program were mark magliardidi first vice president for cbre he was up there representing office dan doherty vice chairman for industrial for colliers international he was obviously talking about industrial and Scott Marker, Director of Retail Services with Cushman and Wakefield, was talking about retail. And the moderator was ravishing Reed Gottesman, Senior Vice President and Regional Manager with Schnitzer Properties, and also the current NAOP Southern Nevada Chapter President. The program sponsor was Cox Business. So let me elaborate a little bit on what I mean by tried and true format that we call the broker panel. Brokers are in the trenches every day talking to developers, talking to businesses. They're the ones that are facilitating the deals that get recorded, that go on the reports, that then get circulated around the market and to the media. You know, simply said, brokers are the ones that drive the trends, that inform the overall community about major decisions, including the financial markets, the economic developers, buyers and sellers, and investor decisions. So bottom line, pay your brokers well and pay them often. All right, I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause, and then you are going to hear the full program from Mark and Dan and Scott and Reed. Here it is, the NAOP April Breakfast, a broker panel. All right, I'm going to start with a quick introduction. I'm not reading full bios because I want to get into it. And then I'm going to give each panelist just a quick moment to tell us a little bit about themselves and, and, uh, and their practice. So first, Mark Bagliardidi. Mark is a first vice president at CBRE. And from where I sit, it's been really fun watching Mark assume a leadership role within the office brokerage community. And I think our audience will really appreciate the insight that Mark will bring today. Mark, just give, uh, take a second, uh, tell about yourself and some specifics about your practice. Yeah, um, thanks everyone. Um, my first time on the panel here with NAOP, so I uh, appreciate the, the invite. Uh, I've been at CB now just a little over a year, uh, and prior to that was at Logic Commercial, obviously focused and specialized in office and sales and leasing. Um, been in town this year will be 20 years, and. It's not my first uh, performance at the Orleans Arena. I, I did at the Orleans Hotel. I have had some performances here in my former career playing hockey, so I'm, I'm glad to be back on stage at the Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> if he knew then what he knows now, right? And uh, you know, you, you mentioned sports, and there's some news today, and we will incorporate, the, incorporate that into our discussion later. Next up is the gentleman to my left. Scott Marker, he's a director of retail services at Cushman and Wakefield. And Scott is a true professional and a true veteran of the industry. And we wanted Scott because when we're looking for somebody to discuss retail, his name kept popping up as someone who's just extremely knowledgeable about, about retail uh, real estate. So he's a new voice for us as well. And Scott, uh, I think I'll have a lot to share with us today. So take a moment and tell about yourself. Uh, very nice words, Reed. Thank you very much. Uh, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> I've been at, at Cushman and Wakefield for about two years, and uh, prior to that, I was with Colliers International for a lot of years, uh, <laughs> twenty something. Um, time flies, and uh, uh, I took a chance to go to Cushman and Wakefield and 
push myself out of my boundaries, my, my safety zone, and, and uh, try to grow, try to grow. So I've uh, seen the town grow. I've been here since 81, so glad to be here and hope I do not disappoint. And I am excited for everyone to hear you on this panel today. And uh, gentleman over there kind of doesn't really need to be introduced. Um, Dan Doherty is a vice chairman. He is not a new voice for us, but he's really among the best voices. With my day job at Schnitzer Properties, I have the privilege to work with Dan and his team. And Team Dig is extremely professional and knowledgeable. And few people I've come across in my career articulate as well as Dan does. So I think it's, it's a real privilege for us to have him on stage today. So Dan, very quickly, uh, give a little blurb about what you do. So started in the business right out of school in 1989, which is before a third of this room was born. <laughs> and very lucky to put into industrial, and I still feel extremely fortunate today to be leasing and selling warehouses for a lot of people in this room. Right on. All right, so I think we've established that there is a lot of knowledge on this panel, and it's my job to verbally extract, extract that knowledge out of these guys. So the way I'm going to do that is with the following structure. I'm going to start with an extremely general question just to get everybody comfortable, get everybody talking and warmed up. Then I want to dig into each panelist with what I would consider a more burning question, something I think is very interesting and I hope that everyone else does. And then we'll get into market questions with the goal to cover topics, uh, de demand, supply, capital markets, and of course the hot topic of the day, sports and the Las Vegas A's. So there's a lot here, certainly a limited amount of time, so we'll see what we could get to. And um, finally, we know the real value of these panels is to get past the headlines to see what's really going on here in Southern Nevada. So that's one more challenge for, for this group here. So we'll start with a general question, and it is extremely general. And it's, what's your overall feeling in your commercial real estate discipline? And I want to start with our veteran panelist, Dan Doherty, on industrial. So I used to have investors ask me a long time ago, developers, I'm going to go do here, I'm going to go work here, I'm going to go do something in Phoenix, Salt Lake, because I want to diversify. And I would say, why would you want to diversify? Vegas never has a downturn. We had one my first couple years in the business in 92 when we invaded Iraq. And I think we built 800,000 square feet that year. And it, and, and it was really slow. But I was an up-and-comer. $30,000, $40,000 was a lot of money. And so I was able to make it work. It's a different story right now. We have so many headwinds. Sometimes I wake up in the morning. I was so happy to read about the, the baseball team because I'm just wondering what the next curveball thrown at us is going to be. But in spite of all that, I, I think industrial real estate in Las Vegas is really showing its resiliency, its ability to adapt and overcome with a massive uh, construction and planned pipeline ahead of us. We still seem to be moving a lot of companies here and even expanding local companies. And that's still with the convention center not operating at 100%. So I, I, I feel grateful for what I do, the people I work with. The market's doing well. We, we delivered 2 million square feet in the first quarter, and we absorbed all of it. Now there's more to follow to that story. But uh, at 1.5% vacancy, I, I don't think we could be in a better position with all the headwinds coming at us over the next two years. And you say the word resiliency, and I think that that's a theme within this market for sure. Uh, I'd like to move to retail. Scott, what's your general feeling. You know, it's, it's interesting to, to hear Dan's um, overview of that. And retail kind of follows the, the same, although on a smaller scale. Uh, we, we have seen the city uh, at times just grow in certain pockets. And when I started, it was, it was Summerlin Green Valley, and that was it. And what we're seeing now, what we're, what we're experiencing is the entire market, you can go point in a direction and something is happening in all, all areas of town. Uh, you've got you know, the, the Green Valley with St. Rose and the Costco uh, that's opened a few years ago, but that phased project is massive and it took forever to get permits and such, but it's still thriving and going all the way to the 15. As you go around the valley, you look at uh, Blue Diamond Road 
and that's going all the way almost to Mountain's Edge, and it's gonna go past that. Uh, Durango 215 and Rainbow 215, south of that is probably the most concentrated, most active area of town now with Uncommons uh, and Narrative Office projects. The retail kind of beat the office, but it's mm -hmm. filling in and becoming established. And then East uh, Craig Road, there are probably 15 new dining concepts out there that weren't there two years ago. So it's, it's great to see the valley grow and all these spaces and all new concepts come into the market. And we're sitting at a 5.3% vacancy, so not quite as fortunate as uh, industrial, but still a very healthy market for retail. That's right. And Mark, before I get into your burning question, just a brief feeling that you have with the office right now. Yeah, so <clears throat> office is uh, a little more challenging, um, but it depends on the sub-market um, and, and the product, of course. Um, everyone's heard the, the catchphrase, flight to quality and amenities. That's very real, and you're seeing it with the new construction in the Southwest. Um, it, it, you know, you could read the headlines, and I could spin that office is positive, and I, and I believe that it is, and I think the outlook is going to be positive. Um, but there's negativity as well in the market with the Hughes Center announcement. So really um, sub-market specific for office, but generally I think the outlook is good. There's not a lot of new product out there. The product that there is out there um, is starting to fill up, and once it's filled up, there's going to be a lack of supply for that type of product. So from, from my perspective, I think the outlook is, is going to be good for office and for all the reasons we talked about, you know, sports and, and it's changing the dynamic of our market um, and becoming more of a sophisticated corporate office market. <clears throat> all right. So that's kind of, we'll kind of funnel it down now. And I want to start with Mark. And this is something that I've thought about on these panels, and I see Tom Van Betten back there, and he's walking out for this, but we spend a lot of time on it. It's, probably, it's actually probably best that he does. <laughs> we, we spend a lot of time on these panels discussing our shiny new Class A office buildings. For our audience, were you guys aware that only 15% of our, of our office market is Class A? So what I'd like to do is take the time to discuss the other 85% of our office market. According to Collier's latest market report, Class C office space has by far the lowest office vacancy rate, 7%, followed by Class B at 11% vacancy, while Class A has an overall vacancy rate of almost 22%. So Mark, can you talk to us a little bit about demand for these less discussed pieces of most of our, our office market? Sure. So. Again, very real stats, um, but what I would say is we're, we're typically a smaller space office market, and those Class C especially, maybe some of the Class B, usually lend themselves to smaller tenants, and, and we have a lot of those and, and less of the big corporate users. Um, we also have a lot of new supply that's come on the market that's affected the Class A um, you know, vacancy until that gets filled up. But uh, I think it's going to, the, the new shiny toy that you mentioned, Reed, is going to lift the, the B and C. We're already seeing um, some of the class B product or A minus, however you want to categorize it. Rates have jumped up. Um, they're, they're benefiting to some of that new construction with you know, big price tags on them that maybe some users can't afford. And like I said, being a smaller space market, those users are going to flock to the B and some of the C. Um, but overall, in the long term, I think some of that, we'll start to see that some of that C um, move up to B. And there'll be some move up here as, as things uh, tighten up as far as supply. That's great. And I think we'll dig more into that as we get into a, more of our market discussion. But Scott, one of the Touch on touch with you now, and the headlines told us that retail died. So why is it that Southern Nevada retail vacancy is at a 20-year low, and retail property that is under construction and due for delivery in 23 is near all-time highs? 
What was the question? <laughs> um, why, why is retail doing no, well when you, you turn on the news and it's not doing Our well. market is resilient. Uh, our city's resilient, but, but diving into the retail commercial real estate, uh, there's, there's new concepts, there's demand, there's, you know, this is, is a hot spot. This is where people want to be. Uh, the world all knows Las Vegas, and I think a lot of our uh, new relocated residents from other states are kind of bringing a, a, a demand for what they had in their city or, or you know, the, the ever-evolving, I need a new place to try, I need a new cup of coffee. It's, it's, it just seems to figure out how to keep evolving and, and addressing the demand. So do you have a place you recommend for a cup of coffee? You know, there's some new concepts looking in town. Uh, everyone loves their Starbucks and their Dutch Bros, but I think you're gonna see some new, new uh, Concepts come along. Better Buzz, I think, is one of them that I think Danny Hubbard's working on. And I probably shouldn't have said that, but, <laughs> but there, there's there, that piece of information there are, we were there looking There are for. a few. Uh, there are a number of concepts that are focused on this market. Mm -hmm. The hard part's going to be trying to address, find the space, find the right space, because we are at 5.3 overall, 5.3 percent mm -hmm. overall uh, vacancy. But trying to find that main on main end cap of the drive-through is is uh, searching for a needle in a haystack. Well, hopefully, some of that new construction will, will meet helpful. those needs. Yeah. All right, Dan. Hello. In my 15 years here, there was a big delta in rates between different submarkets. Also, a large delta in rates between small industrial spaces and large industrial spaces. It feels like there's been a flattening across all product types and submarkets in the Las Vegas Valley. Do you have an explanation for this? So two reasons. Part of it is just <clears throat> the maturing of the market. To drive 12 miles and save 40% rent, which is how it used to be. I kind of use Majestic in the Southwest for the bellwether for rents. So if they were 60 cents on a certain space, 50,000 feet, or, or they were a buck, for a certain 50,000 square foot space, North Las Vegas would be 60 cents. And in some instances, as you move north in the southwest and south in North Las Vegas to Cheyenne, for example, that could be seven and a half miles and you're saving 40%. It was ludicrous. So I've said for 15 years, Vegas, which is what I call the bowl of cereal, surrounded by mountains on all sides. It's one valley. Yet we had such drastic differentials in submarkets. That's shrunk from 40 to 15% in this last eight-year cycle. And, and the reason for that really is we've built so much big box institutional product that continued to push rents. As long as we kept having the companies moving here, local companies expanding to absorb it, we continued to set new rent thresholds. Prologis just sent a, set a new rent threshold on a 335,000 square foot lease at 90 cents a foot net. 90 cents a foot, because they did spec TIs and the government contractor, Global Logistics, had to be in a certain period of time and there was one option. With 16 and a half million square feet under construction, there was one completed option for them to move into. So we've built way less small bay product than we've ever done in my 34 years in this business to the point where I think on an annual basis, if we built three or four million feet a year, 30% of that was incubator flex. Now it's between zero and 4% a year, incubator flex. The institutions don't like it, and we've become so much more of an institutional market that the capital really drives what gets built. Does that explain the flattening of prices between large and small? I think it's because the large has seen such dramatic rent growth that it's Close the gap. caught up to the small base stuff that hasn't seen a lot of shiny new pennies put up. All right, I want to move to market questions, um, start on the demand side, and I would like to encourage you three to talk to each other, jump in anytime you want. Start with demand. What are you seeing in demand uh, within your product type? And any of you take it. So I'm going to start with a question for Mark. And I hope I'm not stealing one of your kind of big information pieces. But a company like DraftKings moves here to supplement their Boston headquarters. 
700 employees, 90,000 square feet. I think they took a whole building at Uncommons. So now I'm starting to see those people out in their hoodies and their jeans because they get to wear whatever they want at all the restaurants that we go to. <laughs> so how much does that type of occupier affect the next one, two, three, four, five corporate relocations here? Does it really make it that much easier to get that next big occupier? I think so. I think the name, I mean, obviously everyone knows DraftKings, and I, I get what you're saying about you know, maybe the, the employee walking around in the hoodie, but it's the name, and there's plenty of other names. Uh, again, you referenced the Uncommons project, that Uncommons, that those are the, the bigger corporate users that the other corporate users or law firms, they want to be there. They don't want to be left out. So I think having those names definitely makes a difference. So, Scott, you mentioned that Texas is influencing retail. What's that on the demand side? Well, it, it's, when I look at where my, where my business is coming from, and, and I'll loop back into the demand, when I look at where my business is coming from, there's a lot of, naturally, you'd think California, and, and a few of those California mm -hmm. groups have, have come in, and we've done deals with those, uh, those groups and expanded. But by and large, I think Texas has a majority of the big headquartered retailers, if, if you will, the Whole Foods, the Chains, Pizza Huts, uh, AT&T, 7-Eleven, are all headquartered in Texas. Are so they influencing what, what's opening here? I, I, I think they're headquartered there. And I, I look at Texas as, you know, as, a, as a benchmark. You look at the Dallas markets, the Houstons, Austins, and you know, these groups are headquartered there. And you can kind of see new concepts are, are evolving or expanding in those markets. So kind of take a look at those markets to see what should be coming here, not just from Southern California as well. But it, Texas is a, it's definitely a hub of, of uh, corporate headquarters for retailers. Mark, are you getting out-of-state uh, occupiers? We are. I think we're, um, we're getting looks naturally from California, um, from other you know, parts of the, the country. Um, and I think that where we used to be maybe getting a glance flyover from California to Austin or to Phoenix or to Dallas, um, I think we're getting more serious looks um, than we ever have. So we're, we're definitely seeing a, a demand um, where maybe it was 20 to 25% out-of-state traffic. I think that's jumped up to probably closer to 40%, maybe even 50% um, traffic we're seeing from out-of-state. Dan, are you seeing mostly regional? Are you seeing out-of-state, California? What's driving your occupiers right now? So with the slowdowns in California that you might not have heard about, uh, Inland Empire, for example, vacancy has gone from 0.5% to 2%. Port activity from New Jersey, Georgia, LA, Long Beach is down 20% year-to-date. So California it's changing, it's slowing down, but it's still a huge benefactor for us. It seems like every company that moves here from California, 150,000 feet, 500,000 feet, there's, there's somebody to backfill that space in, in the market they left. But it's a huge gain for us because we're only 156 million feet. So out-of-town absorption has accounted for three-quarters of all our occupiers over the last eight years here. Now, part of that is because places like this have really tried to manage any expansions because they're afraid of shutdown. They're afraid of, afraid of all these things that have been happening, but we're dealing with ga record gaming revenues here. Occupancies are way up. I don't know how many of you guys get out to the hotels during the week, but it's just crazy to go to the Cosmopolitan on a Tuesday night and just see it be elbow to elbow. Um, but demand is changing. We're finally finishing buildings without them being full. That's a shift. Everything that was built most of the last eight years was leased before they broke ground, when they put a shovel in, or when they were tilting up the wall. So the market is slowing. We just don't have enough. There hasn't been enough data point. There hasn't been enough time in that process to really show the slowing. But the market is slowing. So the pace you're saying is not going to be sustainable. We have a large influx of buildings. You have a pipeline. Do you believe that we're going to get all these buildings filled up? 
or is this pace not sustainable? So I, I can guarantee you one thing. If I knew the answer to that, I would not be sitting here. Where would you be? Because really, you know, we track 243 buildings in our 53 million square foot development pipeline. So that's just, that's just work. You sit in a room for three hours every two weeks and you go through every building and you try to figure out who's really gonna build, who's not, who hasn't broken ground, who did dirt work but doesn't have a building permit, who might have a building permit but doesn't have capital, maybe they have capital, they don't have a construction loan. So we know what's gonna be built to, to a fair certainty and, and we continue to update that. What we don't know is how much longer are we gonna see these companies moving here. Right. Um, vacancy went down a little bit First quarter, again, 2 million square feet built, 2 million absorbed. So we went from 1.6 to 1.5. But we have 16.5 million square feet under construction. Now that is 54% pre-leased. So if we stopped people from occupying buildings today going forward, half of that 16.5 million feet is already leased, half would not be leased. So 8 million feet of new space coming online vacant on 156 plus what we build adds about 400 basis points to our 1.5%, puts us at 5.5% vacancy. A lot of people came to this market to develop 14, 15, and 16 when we were 5.5% vacancy because all the other Western markets were so much higher. So it's gonna be a change to us when this, these big levels of product delivers but even if we don't lease any of it, which would never happen in my opinion, never happen, um, we're still gonna be in a relatively safe spot. And, and that's what's so frustrating with the banks and the capital partners out there who don't wanna do deals. Doug Roberts is driving around today with an institutional capital group to try to get him to do some projects. And I know he's scratching his head like, why aren't these guys putting up money? So they're sitting on massive amounts of capital that's gonna have to be deployed at some point because they have to pay returns to their investors, whether it's taxpayers or pension funds or whoever, it has to go into production at some point. And is there anything better than industrial, maybe multifamily to deploy that capital? There isn't in my opinion. All right, I want to stay with you for just one more. All right, jump I in. I, my head exploded with a, a whole scenario, <laughs> but in, in a good way. In a good way. I think it's a, uh, it's interesting to hear your discipline. Um, you said a word, and I don't want to get caught up in the financing, but permits and and outside groups looking to tenant or buy land here for for industrial purposes. Is the permitting process slowing? people to expand to Southern Nevada? Or is that, is it always- I don't know, if the, don't know if the permitting process is slowing, slowing people to expand. What it did is it delayed a lot of projects to the point where maybe they didn't get their electrical equipment. Maybe they didn't get their roof trusses with supply chain issues. So again, when we go through our pipeline, we're continuing to push projects out one, two, and three quarters. Part of that's the permitting process. Long story short, 25 years ago, it was a 90-day process, cradle to grave. Doug worked on a project in East Henderson. How long did that take you, freeway crossing, to get permit? For a long time, 10 months. So that process has gotten longer and longer. And the problem with the county, which is where 55 million square feet of buildings reside, is you're in line with the A's, who, who hopefully will build a 36,000 seat stadium. But, but if you're building a 20,000 square foot industrial building, you're in line with them for a permit. Who do you think is going to get the tension and special projects and overnight plan and reviews and? Don't don't underestimate what what, what Dan's saying here. That is that is extremely significant. Um, I'm going to stay with you just for one more second, then then move on. But you're saying demand is changing, and I accept that. I, I believe you're correct. Can you identify at this point? Maybe maybe you're not sure yet. Some po pockets of strength and weakness in the demand. So strength is kind of anything 25,000 to 450,000 feet. I am sensing a slowing of occupiers above a half million square feet. Some of you might have seen we just leased the first million square foot building in Vegas. That was actually a two-part transaction. 
That's significant because we have 11 options out there, a couple, one under construction, one leased, and another nine planned. So you had to do the first one to get more. And to absorb this 54 million square feet, square feet that could get built over the next four, five, or six years, who knows how long some of these projects are going to take to get going if they get capital, we're going to need some big users. Uh, Matters building 680,000 square foot building. I don't know if Tom came back in. There he is back there. He's getting a lot of PR today. They're building a 680,000 square foot building. They're painting it right now, so I thought it'd be leased. And we're working on a 400,000 square foot deal. Now, thankfully, they want to cut the building because they want that premium on rents for a smaller space. But I thought a big user would come in and just bully their way and take the whole building, but it hasn't happened. A couple other deals recently got done on buildings that were just finishing. That didn't happen a year ago. All right, thanks, Dan. Um, Mark, to me, when I look at the office market, it looks like there is a lot of musical chairs. Is, is that accurate? To a certain degree, it is. And, and that's been our market for since I've been in the market. Um, you've got people, you know, expanding and contracting naturally that lends itself to musical chairs i think what we've seen with the new product uh, in the southwest is perhaps consolidation of a henderson and summerlin office into one now at the you know beltway the mm -hmm. 215 beltway um, so so yeah we, we're a market of some musical chairs but again i think um, we have been for a long time, but the influence from outside of our market is, is real, and I think it's less than it used to be. So is outside what is gonna take our office market beyond that? I think eventually. Um, it's, already, it's already starting to happen, so it, it, it's not gonna be an overnight change, but it's, it's trending in that direction. So what do you think we can become? What, what's our goal as an office market? What can we attract? So it's a, that's a great question. I think that, uh, I think, the outlook is positive for office. Um, the office market is, has changed. How we all behave in the office market um, has changed with technology. What we can become, I think, again, we have a, a bright future in office. I, I don't know, maybe we're a smaller version of Phoenix who also has, you know, sports presence and good corporate presence. Um, I think we have a lot of similarities to their market. That's, that's one that kind of rings a bell for me as far as what we can become. All right, well, I'll take that sports cue and run with that a little bit and look at, look at Scott, our, our retail sure. person. Um, our market has matured. Someone mentioned earlier today, all we had were the running rebels. We're now a, really a pro sports uh, market, the A's are coming, that's significant. Um, how has this maturing of our market and the influx of sports affected your discipline? Well, uh, I think everyone's excited about the buzz of baseball, I love baseball. I think what it's gonna do to that little, uh, I, I read an article today, it was called, the, it's gonna be called the sports district when you've got Allegiant to the south and you've got T-Mobile to the east and then you have the baseball stadium right there. Uh, I heard talk of a pathway or a, a, uh, a bridge connecting everything. So it's gonna be exciting to see Tropicana kind of evolve from what it is today to probably a very high-end, kind of a high-energy entertainment retail corridor with, mm -hmm. with all the stuff that's going on. It, it's, it's interesting to see and I would compare it to maybe a, a grove in Anaheim or, okay. or, or something of that nature, but it, it'll be fun to watch that evolve. And you know, with, with, with the influx of that, you're gonna bring in more jobs, more residents, more dollars, new concepts. So it, it's only positive how, how the pro sports is affecting the entire market. It'll be interesting to see how if there becomes a master plan, if there, you know, there's a lot of smaller owners within that, how, how that evolves over the next sure. probably a couple of the decades. The ancillary uses to that are, are going to benefit huge. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the, the, the smaller shops, the, the small 
you know, uh, bistros and, and things like that. It's, it's, it's going to elevate the, the entire market. Especially baseball's 162-game regular season. A's haven't been in the postseason for a while, but <laughs> we'll maybe when they come we'll here. We'll see, yeah. yeah. We'll see. Uh, Dan, uh, pro sports, has it affected industrial? I think probably more so indirectly. We, we have seen some scraping of some buildings in the southwest. We've seen some $75 a foot land trades up to $130 a foot around the Raider Stadium. Some of those bought by Mark Davis. You're finally starting to see some kind of mild entertainment parking venues be constructed around the Raider Stadium. But for me, again, kind of going back, it used to be 20 years ago, all you wanted was a developer to call you so you could talk to him and try to convince him to come to Vegas. Now you don't want a new developer to call you because they're a pain <laughs> in the ass. They have to be educated. They're probably not going to do a deal here and you're wasting your time. That's a maturing what, market. What you need now is construction lenders and capital who have kind of placed themselves on the sideline right now. What the pro sports is continuing to do is to bring more people to Vegas. And there's not many people with all the shiny pennies out there, up and down the strip, amazing stuff. When those, there's not many people who come to Vegas and go home and say, well, that kind of sucked. I don't think I'll go back. They say, that's amazing, and I have to get my business there, or I have to make a loan there, or I have to put some capital up for somebody to build a building. And that's really what it's doing. When we get called by groups now, a lot of times they're coming in for an event and they want to meet with some brokerage teams to talk about whatever it is they do. And that's what I like to see, because that's what we need to happen more and more and more and more. All right, I think I want to, just in the interest of time, I want to get into capital markets a little bit. Um, Mark, so I'm going to throw out a statistic, and um, this is one where we want to get past the headlines. According to a study by NYU and Columbia University, the national office market lost 25% of its value. That's $413 billion in the last 12 months. Now remember, that's nationally. $92 billion in office debt is maturing this year, and that's a record, and it's because of the short-term measures that were taken during the pandemic. So in a nutshell, the bill is coming due. Will this national debt crisis that's looming have an effect in Las Vegas? I think so. Uh, I think it already has. That we've we've had a slowdown in investment sell activity, um, pretty significant. I think to the tune of about sixty percent. Um, so so definitely, it will have an effect on our market. I think it will have less effect here um, than nationally, for some of the reasons we talked about earlier with our resiliency and where owners are positioned currently. Um, but definitely, will have some effect. All right, so for everybody else, um, interest rates, bank failures, overall uncertainty, has it affected your business? I mean, you touched on it with, with capital partners. It's, it's had a dramatic effect on our business. Thankfully, there's still people moving here for all the industrial people in the room to lease space. Um, we just closed 150,000 square foot sale lease back. I don't know if Mike Sacco made it here from East Group. Um, there he is. Thanks, Mike. Um, that, that, that project got 17 offers, three right at the at right neck and neck. And so the seller, who's the tenant, was able to pick the buyer and said, I like this group for these reasons. And they weren't the normal reasons, but it was a great fit. We had Link Blackstone come back five weeks ago on a 350,000 square foot project that we pulled from the market 10 months ago when cap rates started to move up. And they said, hey, all seven of these buildings are located around the Raider Stadium. We're kind of trying to focus on more small bay business park stuff. Can we buy this? And they closed last week, 350,000 square feet. We're launching 950,000 square feet in the next four weeks, two big projects up north that we didn't think those guys would sell. So it's way harder to sell anything than it used to be. But if, if somebody said yesterday, if you're a market seller, your project will sell. The problem is, is we don't have a lot of market sellers in Vegas. We have a lot of landowners who still think it's 30, 35 bucks a foot when $24 a foot doesn't underwrite. And so that's why you've seen, one of the many reasons you've seen land sales come to a screeching halt. Capital markets is still moving, but at a fraction of the pace it was a year ago. And I think it's fair to say that sales in each discipline 
have slowed down and due to higher interest rates. Are there um, buyers that are still active? There's a lot of capital. I think there's a lot of capital uh, looking at our market. I, I think what, what to echo what Dan said, uh, we've, got, we've got assets that we, we have pulled from the market because before, I think it was the first or second interest hike, interest rate hike, uh, the ownership group decided this is gonna get bad. Uh, let's just pull it off the market and let's wait it out. Let's ride this this market. So they're reluctant to lower the price and be a market seller. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they are uh, just going to sit and let it cash flow. We've got great tenants. So the, you know, that's, there's no downside in that they had no place to put the capital anyway. And my single tenant, and, and Deanna can probably attest to this, the single tenant net leased market is, is still good with your notable Tenants, your Starbucks, your BJ's, I think you just sold, uh, you know, a number of these household names, they're trading at fair cap rates, but I think most of the market is not a market seller. So single tenant home. net lease investments are strong? Some. Some. If Some. it's a it's strong. A, yeah. It's a strong. If it's a strong tenant, it's a new lease, it's got term, you know, mm -hmm. decent escalations, mm -hmm. but it needs to have all of those components. Mark, where does medical fit into this? Medical still very hot. Um, we have a few deals out on the market and, you know, professional versus medical, we get 10 times the traffic on medical versus professional. So still very sought after the medical office buyer is very active. Okay. Uh, on the retail side, I think there's been pockets of um, retail that have been very strong. Uh, do you see investors moving away from other asset classes and towards retail? Um, I, I think the retail investor <clears throat> loves retail. I've got a couple of uh, clients that are more office industrial uh, holders and own retail and can't wait to get out of it, <laughs> so they hate it. So I, I don't think you see a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, getting out of a certain category. I mean, there's going to be the opportunistic uh, investor, but I think for the most part, the retail guys like to stay in, in their lane and deal with what they understand. I also think the, the retail, especially the single tenant stuff, like I was surprised to learn you and Adam are selling, Dean and Adam are selling single tenant net stuff in the fours. And Vegas, or industrial, has moved from the threes up to the mid fives. But I think it's a different buyer. I think for the most part it's a trade buyer, probably a non-levered trade buyer, so interest rates could go to 30% and they don't care if they're not putting debt on the project. So as long as those trade buyers continue to come in, which they've been coming in pretty strong, we're going to still be able to move product. Again, just different pricing on the industrial side. Mm -hmm. Those are small deals for you though, Dan. These deals are trading at three and five million. Baby, I don't think yeah. you get out of bed for that deal. Got to do a lot of those deals. Hey, you, sorry. Yeah. So, Mark, you actually that 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 reminds me. You mentioned a new sales metric because Dan, it's it's tough. Where what's the right price? And I, in office, you mentioned they're using a different sales metric now to try to figure out pricing. Yeah, no, it's it, so what you're referring to is physical occupancy it's it's been a, a a metric that has never been discussed before that's now very real when we're talking with lenders buyers uh, they'll tour a property that's 100% occupied it looks good on paper and they want to walk it and see it and if they walk it and see it and and the building feels empty um, it's a it could be could be a deal breaker so it's definitely again lenders and buyers alike are all um, looking at the physical occupancy as a metric now that I've never seen until the last, say, the last year. Got it. All right, so there's a few more topics I want to get to. I want to uh, be courtesy of everyone's time. Uh, I'd like to touch on supply. Dan, it, it, it's a little bit of a, you know, the futures question, um, but we have a, such a large pipeline. In your opinion, will it all get built? No. So 16 and a half million square feet under construction, I don't think all of that will get built, which means there's going to be groups who have done site work, mass grading, set a pad. I think once you start pouring concrete, 
you're pretty committed. But we will see 12 months from now fully improved sites either have sold or coming on the market because something happened, whether it be on the construction loan, the capital, or the developer got cold feet. And I don't necessarily think that has to be demand-driven. In other words, it doesn't mean the tenants are going to shrink up and nobody's going to keep occupying space. I think there's just so many headwinds on the development side that you're going to see stuff that's under construction not get finished, let alone the remaining 35 million feet that's in the planned queue. So since we don't know exactly when it's going to break around, we can't predict when it's going to finish. You're going to see a substantial, and, and that 53 million square feet, that's all owned real estate. So that's not a developer who has a site in escrow that we stick into the plan queue. They have to close escrow on the land to go in that 53 million feet. So we're going to see way more than we think not get built. And if demand stays relatively constant, even with these massive amounts of new deliveries, we're going to be in pretty good shape. Will there be some opportunities for groups looking to step in and buy either existing projects or maybe half-started uh, development projects, yeah, I looking mean, for opportunities. Yeah, I mean, we might be bringing back that term value add. Hey, I'm looking for value add deals. I got so sick of those phone calls because <laughs> they just evaporated overnight, it seems like. Then they invented a new term, core plus. So that's where I'll buy something and I'll fix a problem and I'll take a three cap and I'll move it to a four and a quarter. Um, the market is, is, is going to change. It just we got to spot the trends. we got to spot the trends and, and be able to react on them. All right. Uh, Mark, despite what you hear, at least in our market, office vacancy is at a decade's low. Should more office space get built, and what, where, and how will that happen? So I don't think in the near term. Um, I think what we have being built now um, is satisfactory for the market. I, I do think in the long term we're going to need more. Um, contrary to what, what Dan said, I think everything that's being built in office is going to get built. Um, and I think over time we'll need more. Um, but I don't know if that is five years out, seven years out, ten years out. But uh, I think once we fill up the new stuff, there's going to be a need for high quality office. and. I don't know if we're going to have a, a short window there where um, somebody can step up and do it. I, again, I don't think it's in the very near term. I think it's le at least three to five years out. Okay, fair enough. Is, is there an opportunity for small and mid, more small and mid-size owner-user stuff that can be purchased by occupiers? That, that's a good question. Um, so the owner-user activity has actually been strong. So I would say absolutely, and that's why you know every headline is, you know. You got to you got to really dig into these headlines because you hear office and you hear negativity, but yet we have multiple offer situations on owner user small office product. Um, so yeah, I do think there is an opportunity for that. Okay, I'm gonna. I know we're getting up against it, and we want to leave a little time for Dan. Um, he's telling me to keep going. All right, uh, Scott, tell us about a cool concept. What do we not, What do we not know? What are we gonna see? Something that's you know you think is going to be a little bit of a driver. Um, I, I think what we're seeing in, in in a new facet, I guess, is uh, competitive socializing. And competitive I think socializing. Competitive socializing. It's a new new term um, that Vanessa brought to uh, my attention. Um, but it's something we all do. We all play pickleball. We all go to Top Golf. We all go to uh, you know uh, Tiger Woods' new concept, Pop Shot. I think these are establishments that are kind of higher end uh, in the offerings of food and, uh, and beverages. Uh, it's more, you know, uh, getting groups together, competing, whether it's throwing axes or putting or pickleball. Uh, uh, chicken and pickle is another one that's a, a, a new concept going out in St. Rose. And it's this massive sea of pickleball courts with dining concepts where. I think that's, that's where retail is headed. It's more experiential. It's a cool place to be. You spend time with friends, and, and you're enjoying something other than looking at a TV, watching a sport. You're interacting. Uh, everyone of all age you know, categories can, can join and have the fun. So. Sounds like a 
event for NAOP. It, it probably should. All right. Not to take anything away from your bowling program, but <laughs> pickleball might be fun. Was it chicken and pickle? Chicken and pickle. That's They're going to go out on, on St. Rose. Yeah. That sounds good. All right, I have a, a wrap-up question because I do want to give Dan time for, for Q&A. Um, and actually, you mentioned Vanessa. This actually oh boy. kind of came from Vanessa McAvoy of Cushman and Wakefield. And I want to say it correctly because it's a little bit nuanced. Uh, not what are your clients asking you, but what questions should your clients be asking you in this changing environment? They should be asking me about demand and how the market is evolving. What are going to be the changes with you know, their big box tenant that might become fun functionally obsolete? Uh, do I need a 30,000 square foot store selling towels and sheets uh, when I could go online and, and buy it from one of Dan's or Doug's you know, developments and have it delivered tomorrow? It just it, it makes more sense. And to go back to uh, more of the experiential items and spend time on that. So I would, that's what I would So where is have demand coming from? Yeah, where is demand coming from? And be, be able to be nimble and address the demand changes. Excellent. Yeah, for, for on the office side, I would just say, you know, look to the future. What's the outlook? And, and dig into the, the data and the numbers. Um, I think kind of skip the headlines and actually read the article and, and dig in and get more granular. That's actually excellent advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dan. I think a lot of them should be asking, can I prepay leasing commissions on a building that hasn't been built? <laughs> First and second half. <laughs> but really, um, I actually told a, a developer that one time when he came into my office. I said, you pay all those fees up front. He's like, well, I haven't built the building. I said, I know. As we lease the space, we credit you back. And he was like, wow, this is really a weird business. And then I had to <laughs> tell him I was kidding. Um, it amazes me still when, when people come to town dead set on doing a deal and you know, they might be working for a development group that's never built a warehouse. There's one that I know of that has a million square foot building plan. I don't think he's ever built a warehouse. How is that possible? How is that possible that you get a construction loan, you get capital? I don't know how that's possible. Most of them have done it umpteen times, started small and worked up. But as simple as a warehouse is, there are a lot, there's a lot of stuff that goes into developing a quality project. So, I really think, what's my competition? Um, what's my achievable rent, sale prices, all the usual stuff. But for the most part, most of the groups we deal with are pretty educated and pretty capable. So I kind of think we usually get, other than the commission thing, I kind of think we usually get asked the right questions. And I also think that the industrial brokerage group in Vegas is pretty educated on this market pretty educated on all facets of this market. So whether they meet with my team or JLL or Kevin's team at CB or, or Donna and Greg at Cushman, they usually, it's rarely we meet with someone that met with someone else that got really bad advice. I mean, I can't ever remember that happening. So I'm kind of thankful for that as well because it, it kind of eliminates the really bad projects and keeps the good stuff coming. All right. These guys are really good. I want to, you know, before we get into the Q&A here for a few minutes, just want to thank you guys for your, just your knowledge and professionalism and for sharing with the group. But we're not, we're not quite done yet. Uh, Dan Tutlin, are you out there? Yes. There was a one question on the existing stadium district. Do you see any, all three of you actually, the, will there be displacement of the current owners of the businesses? Um, what do you see the future of the stadium district? you know, the contractors that are there, the people doing business that are industrial people. Is the demand there or they just don't want to move? Well, I think the demand will be there. Um, and I think you'll probably have some landowners that are, they're going to realize, or a, a warehouse or a retail building owner to see, that might see an opportunity where I can sell in, like with an office, they can probably relocate to cheaper dirt and develop a building 
and sell this at a premium. If it's, I'm guessing in an industrial capacity, you could probably do that. As far as a retailer, there's probably a new tenant that would come in and pay a premium and now maybe Wendy's goes away or Jack in the Box and it becomes you know, something new. So I, I think over the next 10 years, you'll see two and a half million feet demolished in the stadium area. Now that does extend a little bit to the north side of Tropicana with the 49 acres that the A's just put under contract. That in of itself will eliminate 500,000 square feet because I think there's about a million feet on that 100 acres that Stations owns. I also think, well, I know that the Raider Stadium was built on a 62-acre site. That's never happened to my knowledge, an NFL stadium built on such a small site. So it's going to take some time for that to evolve and for people to understand what's really needed in that area. And we know what's surrounding it is all older industrial. So you're going to see some of that. After the vacant land parcels get built on, you'll start to see older industrial scraped in that area for some type of entertainment use to complement that stadium district. It'll have to be some form of assemblage. Probably. To have anything at scale, you're right, there'll have to be assemblages going on. And, and, and some groups are already trying to do it. I just, I'm not sure we've had enough time in that stadium to really know on an annual basis. We know T-Mobile's the most profitable arena in the United States, but that's on a much smaller scale. I'd love to see Allegiant Stadium get to that level and be super profitable and continue to drive more events through it other than just pro football. We have a very rare guest question from our very own Dan Palmieri. Oh very rare. Uh, Jumbotron junkie, Dan Palmieri, thank you. Um, so tying into what you were talking about, Dan, you mentioned the cereal bowl, right? And so essentially we've built to the edge of town on all sides. I moved downtown about two years ago and you know, versus being in the suburbs where it was 20 minutes to get to everything. I'm now five to seven minutes to the stadium district and the arts district, et cetera. And we're seeing a little bit of gentrification happen in the arts district, guys. But as we've reached the, you know, the outskirts of town, are your clients talking about potential, potential redevelopment of central core properties outside the stadium district? Are you having those conversations yet? We, we have the conversations. The problem is that I've always said shit sells in Vegas. So junky industrial buildings still command a premium primarily for the reason you just said. They're usually in really good locations. I mean, to service the north end of the Strip, downtown is an unbelievable location to put an industrial building. But the stuff that's there that's beat up sells at such a high price, we haven't been able to make those teardowns or conversions work yet. But it has to happen at some point. What about on the retail side, Scott? I, I I think you're going to see some new developments. I think you're going to see the boundaries pushed a little bit. And it looks like we're, we are in a cereal bowl for sure, but I think there's a lot of opportunities for probably the next 10, 15 years to absorb you know, new concepts and, and, and be fine for a while. Well, we are up against it. Can I say uh, one comment? Yes, absolutely. Because I haven't spoken enough. <laughs> I want to... I Congratulate and thank Mark for being up here. Guys like me who look like his father are not <laughs> going to be around in 10 years. We need the young guys, the Chases, the Ryans, the Sams. We need the young guys to step up and say, I want to be on a panel and start to get out there and, and get more educated because that's how this industry is going to keep going. The Kevin Higgins and the Dan Doherty's and the Donna Alderson's, we will not be here in 10 years. So I really welcome and appreciate the younger generation stepping up to take the range because there, to me there's a huge age gap in this industry. I just met a guy from CB, Trace? Tice. Tice. How old are you? 26. There's not many 20-somethings getting in this business, whether it's trades, brokerage, development, and it has to happen to keep the industry going. So kudos to you for getting your first NAOP event done. I'm, I'm just... Yeah. And I think Mark is going to be speaking in Canada here in the next, next few weeks, is that? Uh, moderating next week. Excellent. But I'm just honored to be considered uh, in the younger generation of the group. <laughs> Thank you. Younger than me. <laughs> I can't believe you called Donna old. That's <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Well, thanks again to Cox and big round of applause for these guys. Thank you. And we'll see everybody next month. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.